Okay, kids, you can all go back <coughs> to the puppets. Now, <coughs> obviously, we're <coughs> back to the <coughs> book of John today. And, uh, you know, so far, and, and I told you it would be this way, the book of John has just been a really in, incredible book. And uh, it's just so rich and so full of so many great stories. And, um, you know, we, uh, we, as always, are going to take our time. We're certainly in no hurry and laying it all out. I mean, there's so much to learn, so much to process, and then, of course, you getting it into uh, your Bible. And as always, on Thursday night, if there's things that I lay out that you want clarified or a little more information on, <clears throat> you know, you can always use Thursday night for that, and uh, I'll try to help you get it uh, into your Bible and into your heart as, as best I can. And you remember that last time we finished our study on Nicodemus and his conversation that he had with uh, the Lord Jesus in John chapter 3. And as Bible students who are working to show ourselves approved, as we talked about, we need now, uh, we have an understanding now of how this story lays out. I took the time to show you historically that it was a real story, how that doctrinally that it's a picture of the nation of Israel and uh, what they need to get, uh, how they get the born again. And then I showed you inspirationally last week and shows you how that, as I've told you, taking the parallels and, and running them from the Old Testament based on New Testament principles into the New Testament. And this example here in John 3 is a really good one. It's an easy one. And uh, to show us how we do uh, our, our entire Bible. In fact, I would encourage you to make John chapter 3 a model. Go in there and lay it out the way I did, so you see all the key words and how it breaks itself down. And then when you come up against another story, follow that same pattern, and I think it will, it will help you. And, you know, always understanding that not all the Bible is written directly to you, but it all is written for you. And the key is being able to understand where you're at, the context, what you're dealing with, and then make those three applications. And I, I, I took the time last week to show you uh, just a model of how I do it, how I, I blend John chapter 3 into the plan of salvation for uh, the church age. I showed you how I don't use it directly, but I, I go to Romans, and we talked about the Romans road in Romans 3, Romans 6, and Romans 10. And uh, I wanted to give you an understanding how you put John 3 at some place in there, and everybody does it differently. Uh, into your soul-winning format. John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus, as I showed you last week, has a lot of powerful things that you can use to show a person their need without ever getting into the born-again issue that you can deal with that, you know, in, in, Romans, in Romans. You know, and I showed you the importance of how to make the Bible work for you. That's something that I have talked about all of my ministry, with anybody, no matter where it's at in those 50, almost 50 years, uh, uh, you know, making the Bible uh, work for you. I, I call it a working knowledge of the Scriptures, how to use it in any given situation. That is my goal for you that, that, that want it. And I think the greatest truth 
uh, out of last week. And, you know, and I look back on my messages after I preach them, and I, I just think about, you know, what was the most important thing that I, I, I wanted to get across to them? And obviously, many of the things I said are vitally important, but I think there's always one great truth that will stand out that all the other truth will come under its umbrella. And I think it was the, when I talked about 2 Timothy 2.15, the study that show thyself approved. Our approval reading as a child of God, when it comes to God and his Bible, when he looks at you and me and our relationship with the word, what level of approval reading does he put us at? And I showed you how that today, the Laodicean mindset, God's people, not the world, God's people, you know, they want to have a relationship uh, uh, with Christ, but they don't want to have a relationship with the word of God. And, um, you know, God's people, a relationship uh, trying to have a relationship with Christ, but they don't really want one with the Word of God. You know, Omel Sabaka used to say, and I remember it like it was yesterday, he used to say there's two kinds of ministries. There's two kinds of works. he say there was a work for God, and then there's a work of God. You know, and there's no two, true, no two truer words ever been spoken. So, you know, without any real ability to use the Bible, and you just have your little pet verses on salvation or this or that or whatever you, you pick and choose, you know, people prop themselves up today uh, with some spiritual substitute that they actually think is going to take the place of just really getting in and, and knowing the Bible. They do it in, I told you last week, they do it in soul winning. Hey, I've seen this all my, all my ministry. I've seen people that... All they could talk about was winning people to Christ. I remember a guy years ago that was one of the nicest guys, and I loved him dearly. And he was one of the best soul winners that you would ever meet. And every time he'd talk, I'd see him, he'd talk about, you know, how people he witnessed to. And and I really loved him. He was a great guy. But you know what? He He knew nothing about the Bible. He knew nothing about the Word of God. He lost his family. His kid didn't want to come to church. His wife was a great lady. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, his, his, what propped him up was his idea that soul winning was the number one thing. I told you last week, I've seen, it, seen people do it with the concept of prayer. Oh, the great prayer warriors, you know. And yet reality, if you threw a Bible in front of them and they had to give you the two defining passages on prayer in the Bible, they couldn't do it. I've seen them do it with the bus ministry. <laughs> we don't have a bus ministry, and I'm not advocating we start one. But I grew up in the era where the bus mini was, was the real deal. And, you know, they brought kids from the inner city, and that was great. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where I, I used to take them to camp. I, I used to try to win them to Christ. Uh, my favorite story with the bus kids is as I was walking before the service through the through the uh, hallway there of, of the church. It was a big church. And uh, there on the wall, they had a plaque that, uh, uh, you know, of all the men and women that had uh, went out of that church that, that, uh, that had given their life from World War II to Korea, Vietnam, and all those things. And, and uh, the little guy, bus guy was standing there looking at it. And I said, hey, pal, how you doing? And he said, I'm doing good. He says, what's this? 
And I tried to explain to him that this is a plaque to honor and memorial of all the people that died in the service. And he looked at me and he said, was that the morning service or the evening service, you see? Uh, And things like that are precious to me. But uh, I've seen those same people that they got into the bus ministry, so all they wanted to do, and they actually thought because they knocked on doors and brought kids to church, that that really took the place of getting into the Word of God to any depth. I've seen church workers do it. I've seen them work in the children's ministry. I've seen them do this. I've seen them do that. And, uh, you know, they'll go around everywhere uh, and get involved in all kinds of stuff except the Bible. And, uh, you know, it's a thing where, and I used myself as an example early on when I first got saved. And, uh, you know, you, you can, there's no substitute. You, you'll never get a good approval reading from God without getting into the Word of God. Because everything else is just a worthless work of God. It's important to you, but the most important thing to God is not soul winning, it's not prayer, it's not bus ministry, it's truth. And until God's people pick that up and get into the book, you know, they'll have a work for God maybe, but they'll never have a work of God. The idea of becoming one with Christ through salvation, which I think everybody here that's saved would say amen to. We came one with Christ through salvation, but we'll never become one with Christ in the Word of God. How phony is that? But that's the Laodicean mindset today. Pretending we have this great spiritual relationship with Christ. Oh, we care about souls. We care about this. We care about that. But we don't care about the depth of the Word of God. And, uh, you know, for us, it needs to be all-consuming. One with His Word in your heart, in your thoughts, in your mind, in your spirit, in your actions, in your job, within your family, every aspect of your being. And, you know, as I thought about that this week, I think the greatest example of that is the old, in the Old Testament uh, with the nation of Israel. You see, what many of us have with God, we only drag out on Thursday night or Sunday morning. If you're, your average church is Wednesday night. So we live our lives the way we want to. We show up to church on Wednesday night for Wednesday night service. We show up for church on Sunday morning and probably Sunday night in the average Baptist church. And that's when we drag out our Christianity. We give God Wednesday night, Sunday morning, maybe Sunday night. But the rest of the week, you know, we pretty much are who we want to be. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know what? The great example of being totally consumed by the Word of God in every part of our life uh, is a picture of the nation of Israel. In every aspect of their life, their culture, their lifestyle, their families, everything about them revolved around the Word of God, God, the law that Moses gave them, totally and completely. They were embedded in it. From the time they were raised, they were raised around the Word of God. They knew the law. They knew everything and understood it, every facet of their life. I'm not saying they didn't do other fun things. I guess they did. But I know this, every part of their culture, their family, every aspect of their life, revolved around the Word of God that God gave them. And I think that's the great model for us. 
And I think that obviously that is dealing with a literal thing back there. But for us spiritually, it's the same thing. It's God having all of your heart through the Word of God. God having all of our thoughts through the Word of God. God having our mind through the Word of God. God having our spirit through the Word of God. Our actions, our job, our family through the Word of God. The Word of God for us in the New Testament has to be all-consuming. It has to consume us in everything. And, of course, the way it does is by studying to show thyself approved. And God's model for us is the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. You know what? You're working knowledge of God's Word as God's Word works through you. But you got to get into it <coughs> to make it work. <coughs> now, today... <coughs> Uh, we will look at another story in John <clears throat> that Jesus gave the nation of Israel. And again, it's a great example. And again, we will see this uh, open up into a complete study. That's what most of the stories do in the Bible. Now, you don't get into a lot of stories after the book of Acts. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, obviously the Old Testament is filled with them. But in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John... And also the book of Acts are just filled with stories. Once you get into Romans, now you're on doctrinal ground, and, it, and from that point on, you're dealing with doctrinal issues, what the Bible is teaching us. But I want to tell you, stories in the Bible, when you begin to unlock them, when you begin to un, un open them up, uh, they will become some of the greatest studies that you will ever take in the Bible. This is why character studies are so valuable uh, to studying your Bible. They all open up into somebody's life. And when you get into these stories like we're going to look at today, it open, you'll see it, you'll see it. It opens up into a complete study that you could spend, you know, a week, a month on. And this will be another opportunity today for those of you who really want to get the Bible down and learn and see how to unlock your Bible and make the application of principles from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And it's something that, you know, my goal for those of you who want to do it is to get to that point in your life when you have a working knowledge of the Bible. And you don't have to prop yourself up with some spiritual facade that, uh, that you actually deceive yourself, that you think you're really doing something for God, when at the end of the day, if you don't got the book, you don't have anything. You don't have anything. Now, I want to read John chapter 3 for you, and we're going to read the next three verses. Now, I'm going to read all <coughs> three verses today, but <coughs> we're only going to look at verse 14. I just want the other two for... Uh, for a little bit of a context, but we'll work through the other two verses here <clears throat> as we lay this, these three verses out over the next couple of weeks. But here's what he said. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, <clears throat> but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, help us today to learn the word of God. Help us to be able to take this verse and to see and learn from it how that as this verse, as so many verses in the New Testament, will open up into an incredible study. 
Lord, don't let us go home today with just a a sermon under our belt. Let us go home today with an understanding how that we unearth the scriptures, how that we use the Bible to unlock these great stories because within these great stories are the issues of life. Help us today, Father, to learn how to do this. I'm not interested anymore in just preaching sermons. I'm interested in taking my people that you have given to me that I am responsible for and the ones that will do it, the ones that want to do it, Help them learn how to open up the scriptures. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen. Excuse me a second here. Now, as I said, I read three verses today, but we're only going to deal with verse 14. And again, I want to show you uh, one of the great Old Testament stories in the Bible. I want to show you how you start here God gives you the key, and then you run back to where the key is found in the Old Testament, and then you watch how the story will develop itself. This is, this is Bible Study 101 today. We're going to have some fun today. Uh, not that we don't always have fun with the Bible, but <clears throat> it's days like today that, you know, it's just, it, I love times when I can help you learn your Bible. You know, in my book on how to study the Bible back there in the bookstore, which, by the way, has sell, sold well under a million copies, um, you're going to find that I, one of the things that I do in there is I talk about the Bible being a picture book. And, uh, you know, uh, back in the bookstore also, we have, we have little kids' Bibles. And therefore, you're little kids that they can go in there. And what they do in those Bibles is you'll read the story of maybe Adam and Eve, and you'll read a couple of pages about that, and then they'll purge your bathe, and there'll be a picture of Adam and Eve in the garden. And for a little child, the picture illustrates what you just read. You'll go on and you'll read about the death of Cain and Abel, uh, death of, of uh, Abel by Cain. And there'll be a picture of a mean old uh, Cain with a big old rock or a club and Abel laying on the ground dead. You'll read over there in Genesis chapter 6 about Noah. And you'll read a couple of things in there about the flood, and then you'll turn the page, and there will be that big old ark with the clouds looming over it and all the animals two by two going up in that ark. See, little kids need that illustration because when they just read something, for a little child, the illustration of a picture really makes what you just read understandable. And you know what? When God wrote the Bible, he did it the same way. Because pictures in the Bible are, are, is what your Bible is all about. And we are to be little children when it comes to the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 2 to 4, and I don't know why they can't get this. He said, except you come to me as a little child, you have no part of me. There's no scholarship when it comes to the Bible. There's no Greek or Hebrew. There's no great learned men who have studied the Scriptures for a thousand years, you know, that have the key to the Bible. We are all Bible students. We're just on different levels. But you can't ever come to the point where you grow up when it comes to your relationship with God in the Bible. It takes a childlike faith. And when God wrote a Bible, he wrote a Bible that he'll tell you some things. And then throughout the Bible, there's pictures of what he illustrates. I'm going to preach to you one of those pictures today. The Bible's not a hard book to learn. And I, I always tell you that. 
you know, it's not a hard book to learn. You just have to follow three basic things. First of all, you have to follow the rules. You've got to stay with the rules of the Bible. I mean, you don't follow the rules when you go home today. You get a ticket. You know, you've got to follow the rules. And the rules are, you know, we've given them out many, many times, but, uh, you know, you have to follow the rules. The second aspect of learning your Bible is a self-discipline to it. You have to discipline yourself to the rules. You know, you can have all the rules. You can have them in your Bible. I've had people come over and say to me, you know, and call me on the phone or see me here at church, and they'll, I get it all the time, and they'll say, you know what, <clears throat> I want you to come over. I'm going to come over, and I really want you to show me how to lay out my Bible. Well, okay, I got that. But you know what? Me showing you how to do it is going to be very simple. I'm not going to move in with you. I'm not going to show up every time you study the Bible and make sure you follow the rules. I mean, I can sit down with you for a thousand hours, but if you don't do what you're supposed to do when it comes to the book, we're wasting our time. So you have to have the rules, but you have to have the self-discipline to use the rules. And then, of course, the third thing is you have to be a workman. It ain't going to just come to you. You're going to have to work to get it. And uh, it's going to take a childlike faith based on a childlike Bible, based on your childlike relationship. You know what the perfect or biblical balance is for every one of us that's saved? You become a man with the Word of God, but you stay a child in your relationship with Him. That's the balance. And I'm telling you, now, when Jesus, what Jesus says in John chapter 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, let's just look at that verse for a moment. Now, I'm not going to be like Thursday night where I ask you to raise your hand on what you saw. We don't have time for that today. But just look at this. Let's read it again. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, one of the things that you need to do as you discipline yourself in the Bible and, uh, you know, you follow the rules, one of the things that you need to do, and you can put it in any one of these three you want, <clears throat> you need to develop a spiritual eye. You need to be able to see something in the Bible and see it almost immediately from a spiritual eyesight perspective. And uh, when you read this verse here, and Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, what do you see? If somebody asks you after church this morning, hey, would you come over to our prayer group or our Zoom group or whatever, or, you know, and would you take that verse and just give us a five, six, seven, eight, ten minute deal on it, what would you do with it? What would you do with it? How's your spiritual eyesight when you see verses like this? Because this is, as you're going to see here in a minute, one of the greatest stories you're ever going to unearth in the Bible. And the fact that you've been saved, what, 10, 12, 15, 20, 30 years, and you can't unearth it? You need to get yourself a bigger shovel. There's something wrong. Now, when he read this in verse 14, here's the first thing I see. He's talking about an event that happened all the way back in the Old Testament. 
And of course, if you're a, a student in the Bible who shows himself approved, you know that would be Numbers chapter 21. Now, let me just say this. I know there's a lot of people here today that uh, you're, you're just at the entry level or you're, you're uh, maybe not even at the entry level or you're, you're moving away through this thing and you're being worked with and you're growing and, and, and you wouldn't absolutely know that. I'm okay with that. I'm not, I'm not saying that to make you feel bad. I'm saying that because you have to develop the ability at some point to be able to see those things in the Scripture. And, uh, you know, if I'm getting on anybody, I'm getting on to those of you who've been around for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 120 years, and you still can't get it. Now, let's go back to Numbers chapter 21. Let's do that. We're going to have fun today, but I want you to see how you develop this. Numbers chapter 21. And this is quite a story. Let's go back and and read the account that Jesus is making a reference to in John chapter 3, verse 14. That would be the first thing my spiritual eye would see. And we know from Revelation chapter 3 that one of the four or five problems the Laodicean church had is that they're blind. So, okay, let's read it. Verse 4, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass, uh, every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man, when, that, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now, spiritual eye, what do you see in that? We've obviously given you the first clue. We went from John 3 to 14 to here. But in this passage, look at it just for a moment. What do you see? When I look at it, I see four, five, six things here that just pop out. You got to develop the ability to do that. And today, I want to help you. The way you learn it is by having somebody doing it, and then you see the pattern, and then you make a model of that for yourself, a, a template so to speak, and then you use that on every story that you find. That's how I did it. Now, right here in the book of Numbers, you have a picture, whether you know it or not, of your salvation. A couple of months ago, I preached out of Exodus chapter 12, the gospel according to Exodus, okay? Here today, we have the gospel according to Numbers chapter 4. 
And I want you to begin to look at this passage, and we're going to talk about several things here before we get to the verse we want. Now, in our study here, I want you to notice that Israel has just come out of the Red Sea crossing. And you know the story. God called them out in Exodus chapter 12. They head down the down there to the promised land, and they come to the Red Sea. Somebody looks behind them, and, and uh, Pharaoh decided that he wasn't going to let them go. So he's after them now. And they begin to be afraid, thinking that, you know, Moses brought them out there, and now they're going to get killed. So what does God do? God opens up the Red Sea. They go across, and, uh, you know, and then they get to the other side, and then somebody looks back, and they see Pharaoh's army coming through the Red Sea because it's still split open. And now they start to be afraid again. So what does God do? He closes up the Red Sea, drowns all Pharaoh's army out, and off they go. And, uh, you know, it's a great miracle. And in our story today, they have just come out of that Red Sea crossing. And now they start the journey to the promised land. Now, let me help you with this. What does the promised land mean? In most Baptist churches today, certainly in neo-evangelical churches, uh, with most guys today who know nothing about the Bible, they say that the promised land is a picture of you dying and going to heaven, crossing over Jordan. And, uh, you know, and uh, they wrote songs about it. You know, I've heard guys preach messages on it, you know, that when you die, you cross over Jordan and the promised land is heaven. Uh, that, that just isn't true. I'm sorry. That's just not the way it works. But I get it. When you don't know nothing about the Bible, you're left to getting your sermons off the Internet. I understand that. Let me talk to you about the promised land. My first clue would be promised land. Heaven's not a promised land. I mean, there's promises to me that I'm going to heaven, but once I get to heaven, I don't need the promises. I'm going to be Christ. I'm going to be everything that he is. Promises aren't going to do me any good. I'm going to be the Word of God incarnate. What does the promised land really represent? I'll tell you what it represents. It represents you and me right now in this life going through our own wilderness journey, coming out of Egypt, a type of the world, through salvation, Exodus chapter 12, and then coming to the place in your life and my life where we live in a world that is totally against us but we survive by the promises God gave us. You ever go back to Joshua chapter 1 and look at the three things God tells them? Here's the way it worked for them historically. They went into the promised land, which God promised them, but they had to fight to keep it. And they had to stay in the Word of God to keep it. And any time they got out of the Word of God and they got into sin, they they got into all kinds of problems. The promised land for you and for me is the life that we get through through studying to show ourselves approved, getting the Word of God in our lives, that you and I now live by the promises of God even though we're in the wilderness of sin. But nobody can get that today. And of course, it's, it really is the key to our study here. The promised land is you getting to the place in your life with that book that you're strong, that you're mature, and that you have a working knowledge of the Bible. And every day you live by the promises of God. You don't live by your emotions anymore. You don't prop yourself up with some kind of spiritual facade. You're, 
your self-worth is found in a book. Through God doing a work with you, using you, giving the circumstances into your life. I have people all the time, they come to me, you know, especially, well, why don't you give me somebody to disciple? You know, I've heard that for the last 15, 16 years. And I always say the same thing. Why don't you go out and win somebody to Christ and, and disciple them? Why is it incumbent upon me to give you somebody or give you somebody to work with? <clears throat> when God's got plenty of unprepared sinners out there, you know what he doesn't have? He doesn't have prepared servants, which you're not one of them. So you whine and complain about you don't have anybody to work with when all you got to do is just win somebody to Christ. I mean to tell you it's a thing where it's that that simple. You just got to get into the mainstream of your New Testament local church and be part of what God is doing and then let God put you wherever he wants you to go. But I've always, I get, you know, as a pastor, it's just, just me, as a pastor, you get blamed for everything. And I don't mind getting blamed for everything, but I, I do mind getting blamed for your lack of spirituality. Don't blame me because you're not in the book. Don't blame me because God's not using you. Don't blame me because you, you don't have anything going with God. That's not my fault. I have to do what I had to do to get there. Everybody else does, so do you. And that's the way it works. And it's a thing where, you know, this is an incredible story. So the promised land is when you and I come to the place in our life where we live by the promises of God and we don't want for anything because God supplies every need that you have, including the people that you invest. You're not going to tell me for a moment that God saved you to do a work and you don't have a work today, and that's my fault or somebody else's fault? No, no, it's your fault. Got to get in the book. If you get in the book, the book will get in you, and then you can get into others. That's how it works. Now, I need you to see this next thing here. I mean, there are so many good things here. We're developing our story. Spiritual eye. I need you to see this. Boy, here we are, all of us, developing a trained eye. My dad was a great mushroom hunter. We got some great mushroom hunters in our church here. My dad loved to hunt mushrooms. And I, it's coming that time of year here, next May or something, they just pop out of the ground. And my dad used to take me mushroom hunting with him. And I must confess, I never found a mushroom any time in my life. I found toads, I found turtles, found garter snakes, but mushrooms eluded me. My dad could spot a mushroom 20 feet away. He would say to me, Bob, get that mushroom. And I said, where is he? He said, you're standing on it. I couldn't see him. You know why? He had a trained eye. He'd been hunting mushrooms since he was a kid back in Maryland. And I know you hear this story all the time. My dad and his family, I think there was, what, five or six brothers and three sisters? They lived in a log cabin. I saw the cabin when I was a little kid. It's gone now. They lived in a log cabin. Darlene knows this. Sharon knows this. They lived in a log cabin. Didn't have any electricity. 
dad, their dad took off or died or whatever. I didn't ever get the full story. When they were all there and all mom had was all these boys, five or six of them, and I think three, three, three daughters, three, three girls. I may be wrong on that, but, but it, was, it was a crowd in a log cabin. And uh, you know what? They had to survive. My dad was a crack shot. You know why? Because that's how they survived, hunting. He was a great fisherman. You know why? That's how they survived, fishing. It was a thing where that's, that's what they did. And my dad could spot a mushroom a mile away. We'd be driving down the road, and he'd say, there's mushroom over there in the field, and pull over and go get it. I couldn't see him at all. You know why? He had a trained eye. You got to train your eye to see those suckers. Because you just look at the grass, you look at the foliage and all that stuff, and they're there. I could never see them. Because it takes a trained eye. And when it comes to the Bible, for you to see the things in the Bible that I want to give you, that you in time need to get yourself, you'd have a trained eye, guys. It's just that simple. Now, let's flip back in Deuteronomy chapter 1. I want you to see this. Because here we are, and boy, you need to see this today. Deuteronomy chapter 1, let's just read verses 1, 2, and 3. Believe me, it'll be enough. He says there, These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side of Jordan before they went over, or after they went over, in the wilderness, in the plain over against the Red Sea between Paran and Trophet and Laban and Hazeloth and uh Dizahub. He said in verse 2, There are 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barina. Now they are right here now. And he says, From they just come out of the Red Sea. And he says, From when you come out of the Red Sea, going to the promised land, it's an 11 day journey. It's an 11 day journey. Get it now. From the time they come out of the Red Sea, where they're at here, where we're reading this thing, till they get to the promised land was 11, it took only going to take them 11 days to get there. Look at verse 3. And it came to pass in the 40th year. This is the great sermon in itself. 40 years for an 11-day journey. They could have got to the promised land in 11 days. It took them 40 years because they simply would not do what God told them to do. And I ask God's people the same question. I ask myself the same question. How long will it be before you get the Bible down and you're living by the promises? Some of you have been with me, what, two years, three years, four years, five years, and all I can say about you is, wow. You're about to cross over Jordan, or you've already crossed over. Yet I've had some with me 20, 30, 40, 30 years, and they're still wandering in the wilderness. 40 years for an 11-day journey. This goes to show you what Moses was up against, and it should show you what we're up against in Christianity today. You can have that Bible as fast, almost as fast as you want it. I know there's no shortcut to it, but boy, let me tell you something. You stick with me and let me give you, and you follow the, uh, the, the Bible Institute and the people ministry on Thursday night, and you do the work you need to do, you can be there in five years. Why is it taking you 
30 years and you're still not there. I mean, some of God's people couldn't put the word of God together if their life depended on it. And, you know, and I know, I know. And I'm not suggesting you don't know some things about the Bible. Certainly not. But you don't know the Bible. When I left Canton, Ohio, one of the prerequisites of being sent out in ministry, I had to answer 10 questions. I have those 10 questions in the front of my Bible. Those 10 questions, I had to go before four or five guys who really knew their Bible. And I had, and they asked me, each one of them had a question I had to answer. And I couldn't use my Bible. I couldn't have any notes. I had to teach it from what it was in my heart. And I just couldn't give a one-line answer. It, I had every one of them, and there was a guy timing me. Every one of them had to be 10 to 15 minutes, 20 minutes long. Because those 10 questions that they asked me, if you could answer them and answer them thoroughly, there was no question you knew your Bible. Now, I don't make people do that today. You know why? Because you'd all leave the church. Shoot, people leave the church today just because you preach a hard message. I can imagine somebody say, well, I want to get in ministry. Here's these 10 questions. Well, you sit out here and let me run them through you. Well, I ain't going to do that. No, you're not going to do that because you don't know them. And so I won't embarrass you. But that's what it takes. You see, this is the problem between my generation and your generation. We got nailed hard when it came to the Bible. The people that used me in ministry didn't take any flimsy excuses like people give today. They held us accountable. You did it their way, or you didn't do anything. I mean, it was a, it was, you, 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 if you, if you didn't do what was right, you got your head handed to you publicly because they knew that they, we had to endure a hardness and they weren't afraid to put us on the spot because you know what? If somebody just comes up and puts their arm around you and pats you on the little shoulder and says, now next time you're going to do it this way, you won't remember it. Somebody calls you out in the middle of a sermon someplace and says, why don't you preach that right? You remember that. Happened to me. I remember it like it was yesterday. I had nightmares about it. Best thing that ever happened to me. 40 years. 40 years for an 11-day journey. I'll tell you. This is why I feel so out of place. And I'll be honest with you, this is why my ministry is not for everybody. We have people come here and they don't stay. People come here, they stay for a while and they get caught up in stuff and they're, they're not going to, they're not going to do what they need to do. They're just not. We'll see those people here in a little bit. They're not going to stick around here. You know why? Because I'm old school. I'm sorry. I'm the Woody Hayes of Baptist churches. I was trained hard. I was trained different than people are trained today. And I'm telling you, it's a thing where that's the only way to do it. And we, and I'm, and I'm caught in a, I'm top in a time warp. I'm caught in a lay of the sea in church mess where every Christian almost, every Christian man without a stand for God can't stand for anything. And everybody wants to prop themselves up and pretend they're spiritual right until you throw the book in their face. And they fall apart. And you know what? What happens when you fall apart? You get mad and leave. And it's okay. I get it. I understand. Now look at verse 4, going back to chapter twenty. Back to our original chapter here. I don't even know where that's at anymore. Chapter 21. 
Yeah. Let's go back to verse 4. Yeah. It says the soul of the people were much discouraged because of the way. Now, that's the second thing my spiritual eye sees in here. Once I make the leap from John, and he's talking about this is something to do with Christ, death on the cross, and we go back to Numbers 21, and we start to see that Israel had just come through the Red Sea. And now verse 4 says, the soul of the people was much displeased because of the way. I mean, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, you got this has got to be a joke. This has to be a mistranslation. They have been out of Egypt, what, one week? And they're already want to go back and they're giving up. Now here is the real issue. And I want you to see this. This is the next thing, your spiritual eye. And I'm going to tell you. Once you get your Bible down, you're not going to be real popular. Not everybody's going to love you. Not everybody's going to like you. Though they'll still listen to you on YouTube. Listen to me. Listen carefully. In any issue with people, you need to get to the real issue. Because most issues that people tell you are not the real issues. And there is a great lesson here. A couple of weeks ago, I told you that the real opposition in ministry will be the people of God. Well, here we go. Now watch, verse 5. Train spiritual eye, do you? Good. Some of you need to get your spiritual glasses on because you can't see 2020 with your eyes, and some of you need a big pair of binoculars. And the people spake, spake against God and Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread. Now watch this. <clears throat> this is what you catch when you have a spiritual eye. <clears throat> Not that I see 2020 spiritually, but this is an easy one. God's people just cannot discern the things of God. It's right here. I mean, they just came out of the Red Sea. They're not out a week. And they're whining and complaining and want to go back when they just saw one of the greatest miracles in the history of the world, the Red Sea crossing. If that wasn't enough, from Exodus chapter 2 to Exodus chapter 12, they watch a man take a stick and turn water to blood. They watch him bring plagues of locusts and frogs, more frogs than they've ever seen in their life. They watch the man bring in the lice. They watch him bring fire down from heaven. They saw some of the greatest miracles that in the history of the world. And it meant nothing to them. Now, the second thing they said, <clears throat> we have no bread. And we know that's a lie, and that's not true, because you go back to Exodus chapter 16, God supernaturally brought them manna to eat. So that's not true. They say, we have no water. That's a lie. 
That's not true. Because in Exodus chapter 17 and verse 6, he brought water out of the rock. These people do not have the ability to see the miracles of God that's all around them. They have no ability to see what God is doing in their midst. And they are just like God's people today that grumble and groan and complain of what they don't have when everything they could ever want is all around them. Now, let's take our spiritual eyesight and let's, let's break down and identify these people, shall we? Who knows? Your picture may be in here. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 11. And we'll pick it up in verse 4, 5, and 6. Ah, here we go. Verse 4. And the mixed multitude was among them, fell a lusting. And the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who shall give us flesh to eat? You see where the children of Israel, that be the 12 tribes, where they got tainted? It was with a mixed multitude. You do see that. We remember the fish, which we did in Egypt, freely. The cucumbers, <laughs> the cucumbers, and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. See, they remember that, but they forget for 400 and some years they were slaves in Egypt. Their grandfather, their father, their mother died making bricks. They were whipped. They were beaten. When they fell down and the big slabs of stone rolled over them, nobody stopped and got them out. You got crushed to death and buried in the mud. Look at verse 6. But now our soul is dried away. There is nothing at all beside this manna before our eyes. Now, as I told you, the trouble in churches is the same trouble that Moses had in the Old Testament. New Testament or New Testament. It's God's people. And it always starts with a mixed multitude who really hate the Bible. And they can't leave the things of the world behind, even though they're in churches today. Now go back in chapter 21 of Numbers and look at verse 5 there. Numbers chapter 21. Now watch the dishonesty here. Watch, this is trained eye stuff. Watch the corruption and the dishonesty of God's people then and God's people today. Verse 5, Numbers 21, no bread. Really? Look at the last part of verse 5 with your spiritual little glasses on. No bread? Really? But then they said, our soul loathe this light bread. Oh, then you did have bread. See? That's this crowd. That's this crowd. We don't have any bread. No, you had the supernatural bread that God gave you, but you hated that. You wanted the bread from Egypt. Well, well, <laughs> there was bread. You just hated the bread that God gave you. Numbers chapter 11, verse 6. Our soul is dried away. Nothing at all besides this old manna. That's God's people. That's God's people back there. That's God's people through the trained eye and the story God's developing here with God's people today. Complaining and murmuring about God that they have nothing when they really have everything. They just can't see it. 
That's God's people today. When you got saved, you had all the blessings in Christ Jesus you could ever have, but you know where they're at? They're in the Bible. And the reason why God's not using so many of God's people, because you're not using the Bible. It's not a question that you teach the Bible wrong. It's a question you don't teach it at all. No. (laughs) I got to show you something else. I got to throw these glasses away. Oh, boy. You love this. Old Testament, flow into the New Testament through principles. In any church, to any pastor, this is not exclusive to any one church. It's across the board in Christianity, the mixed multitude. They'll come into your church and they'll hang around. They'll never get into the book. They'll take everything that you have. And after some time, they'll find fault with you who are working with them. It's happened to almost every one of you that's working with people. Or they'll find fault with me. And they'll be gone. And everybody scratches their head and says, I wonder why they left. I wonder what mean Bob did to them. I wonder what that person working with them said to them to make them mad. I'm going to sell these after class this morning for $1,000. They're my spiritual glasses. You get them, you'll see things too. Let me show you how the Holy Spirit of God always corrects imperfect vision. Because what I just said, the example that's gave you of poor people, why did they leave? Oh, why did they leave? I don't understand. That's because you're stupid. That's because you can't see anything out of the Bible. And you operate on your emotions. See, you need to develop a spiritual eye. Now, I'm going to show you something that's worth a $60 billion a word. This is how the Holy Spirit of God keeps everybody honest. But God's people don't see it because God's people are so stupid. Now watch how the Holy Spirit of God deals with this issue. Look at Numbers chapter 21, verse 5. What do you see? Just look at it for a moment. The trained eye of Scripture. What do you see? What do you see? He says there, oh, I got to read it to you again. He says there, and the people spake against God and against Moses, wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, for there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our souls loatheth this light bread. Spiritual insight. Look what he said. Look how the Holy Spirit of God nailed it for us. Verse 5 says, And the people spake against, number one, God. Then, Moses. See how the Holy Spirit of God cleaned that issue up for you? Their issue wasn't with Moses. 
Their issue was never with Moses. Their issue was with God. They just blamed Moses because Moses was there and the man God was using to develop their nation. Now these people are in churches across this country today. And you see them by their patterns. They have been in church after church after church after church. And it's always Moses' fault. Now that's one of the greatest things you'll ever see in your Bible, how the Holy Spirit of God keeps everything honest. I'll tell you another one. Remember back in Exodus chapter 32 that uh, Aaron, Moses is up on the mountain and the people want a golden calf? Remember that story? So they, Aaron has them break off all their earrings and all their jewelry and everything and he puts it in the, and uh, makes a molten image and Moses comes down and Moses is just hotter than a firecracker and God says, you better get down there, boy, because things are falling apart down there. And so he goes down there and there's Aaron, Aaron. The second in command, Aaron, Aaron. Now, what does he do? He does the same thing that we all do. Well, Lord, the people. You know how these people are. And, Lord, I, I'm really not responsible. Lord, I just, I just threw all that stuff in the fire. This golden calf walked out. He's the first evolutionist in the Bible. He says, I just, but Lord, I don't, the people, you know how these people are, and I just took all that gold, and yeah, yeah, I just threw it in the fire. And out walked his calf. You know, a lot of God's people are just the same way with Aaron. You want to blame what you do on everybody else. It's a failure. But God keeps you honest. You know what God said in the last verse of that chapter? He says, and the calf which Aaron made. He knew who made it. And he got in here in Numbers chapter 21. They're, 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 they're blaming Moses. No, 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 no. Holy Spirit of God got it in the right order. You hate God. You hate his word. Then Moses. <laughs> I'll tell you what, man. Nothing like a Bible to clear up your insanity. Issue wasn't Moses. It was with God. They just wanted to blame Moses for him taking God's side and being God's man. And this wicked, godless, mixed multitude will always blame somebody else for their hatred of God in the Bible. And the churches across America are filled with them today. And their pattern, church after church after church after church after church after church. Listen. That Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifested in sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of which we have to do. That book will fillet us like a fish. And it will always show you where the real problem is. And brother, as I said, some people bring joy wherever they go. And some people bring joy when they go. Now you can write that down. But that book never misses it, does it? 
But you see, you got to have a trained spiritual eye to see it. It wasn't Moses they hated. It was God. Some things never change. I've seen people all my life, all my ministry, all their adult life, they have rejected any real spiritual truth, found fault with anybody who's tried to help them, lied about them. And in every case, they move from church to church to church, and in every case, they're always blaming somebody else. Now we know what the real issue is. It's been fixed for you. Verse 5, the real issue with the children of Israel is the same real issue with the mixed multitude today. They hate God first, then Moses. But the real issue is always the Lord. Then you got to see this. Hey, are we developing this pretty good today? And their sin against God and Moses will bring God's judgment on them. It always does. Old Testament and New Testament. Verse 6, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. Now, that's God using the devil and his crowd to deal with Israel's rejection of God and then Moses. We know from Genesis chapter 3 that the devil was portrayed as a serpent. He wasn't a serpent in form, but he is portrayed as a serpent for a reason. And now we find fiery serpents here. Fiery connected the fire, hell, lake of fire, because when these people died and got bit, that's where they went. And this will move right into the New Testament principles. Look at verse 7. Therefore, the people came to Moses. Ah, come to Jesus' meeting. They came to Moses. Well, that may happen back then, but in all my years, it's never happened to me. They don't ever get right. Therefore, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against ooh, the Lord and against thee. Oh, they finally got it. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. They got it. But God's people today never will. You mark my word. Those fiery serpents are going to be in your world. They're going to bite you. They're going to bite your kids. They're going to bite your family. And you're going to all wind up dying spiritually. Now, what a great story so far. We ain't done yet. And now what follows is what Jesus was likening himself to in John chapter 3, verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must be the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, now we've got the background to this. We've seen the issues involved and how the trained eye sees those issues as they really are. Okay, let's go now read Numbers chapter 21, verse 9, and make the par parallel correlation between John chapter 3. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now here's a picture of Christ becoming sin for you and for me in the New Testament. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That serpent on the pole represents the curse on man brought on by the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, which puts us all in the lake of fire because at one point we all were bit by a fiery serpent and we're going to die and spend an eternity in the lake of fire, which brought about the sin debt of fallen man. And on the cross, Christ became that sin, that serpent, and became my curse. Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And that written is, guess it, Deuteronomy 21, 23, right in that passage. The Bible says in Job chapter 25, verse 6, and again Psalms 22, 6, crucifixion passage, as Job 25 is, that on the cross he became a worm. Isaiah chapter 6, 6, verse 24 says that he we became, unsaved man becomes a carcass. Because in hell, you and I would have degenerated into a worm, Mark chapter 9, verse 48, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Now I want you to notice that it's a serpent of brass, trained eye. Brass in the Bible is a picture of judgment. So this serpent now is a picture of God's judgment on something on a pole that became a serpent. This serpent on the pole, listen to me, was their healing. Christ becoming my serpent on the pole, paying my sin debt, became my healing because Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, with his stripes we are healed. Now, in the medical world, you nurses, doctors, and people who are connected with the medical world, you'll find that the symbol for healing in the medical world is a pole with a serpent on it. Right out of Numbers chapter 21. You can't get away from the Bible. And just as in Israel's need, God raised up a brazen serpent, and when they looked to it, they got saved from their sin. God raised up his son on the cross who became a serpent, my curse, my sin personified. And he became that serpent, and all those who look to the cross will be healed and delivered from their sin. The, the bite of a fiery serpent would be the sting of death, 1 Corinthians chapter 55, uh, or 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 55 and 56, the sting of death. And in your hymnal, look at it, page 195, you'll find a great hymn based on John chapter 3, verse 14, and Numbers chapter 21, look and live. I have a message from the Lord. Hallelujah. The message unto you I give. This record in his word, hallelujah, it is only that you look and live. Look and live, my brother live. Look to Jesus now and live. Tis recorded in his word, hallelujah. It is only that you look and live. There it is, based on Numbers 21, John chapter 3. That is taking an Old Testament story that Jesus made a reference to First step, finding it in the Old Testament. Second step, using the trained eye to start to see the parallels between God's people in the Old Testament and God's people today. My, my, my. Now, I wish I could just stop here now and say, God bless you. Have a nice day, but 
I got 15 minutes yet, and this ain't the end of the story. Now, do you want to see God's people? I've shown you God's people. I've shown you how the people in the church, they get mad at Moses, when in reality they were mad at God. Moses was just a representative of God. I showed you that crowd. Now, do you want to see God's people and how they, when they don't stay with the book, how they fall into complete apostasy? I'm going to show you now a picture of Laodicea Christianity, every Baptist church, almost without exception, certainly every Laodicea, every neo-evangelical church, and everybody else out there, and 99.9999% of Christians. Somebody says, why do you keep saying 99.9999% of Christians? Because there was a guy in our church one time who was a great spiritual guru, and he says, I just can't stand it when you say 99.99999. So I say it in honor of him. <laughs> Irritation is my spiritual gift. You've got to see this. I wish the story ended here. I really do. Because we're at a good place to end this story. They got right with God. They got fessed up that they weren't Moses. They were upset about it. It was God. Everything's looking good. Oh, it didn't stay good. Oh, you got to see this. The trained eye. This must have been a hot message today because it melted all my ice in this drink here. Okay. Take a deep breath. Here we go. Numbers chapter 21, according to Usher's chronology, takes place around 1451 B.C. Now I want you to turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 18. According to Usher's chronology, 2 Kings chapter 18 takes place around 712 B.C. So we are looking now in 2 Kings 739 years later. Now watch this. Because here's God's people today. Every Baptist, every neo-evangelical, and anybody else who dumps the King James 1611, here's where you are at today. Got your spiritual glasses on? I hope so. Because I'd hate for you to miss this. 18, 2 Kings 18, verses 1 through 4. Now it came to pass in the third year of, of Hosea, son of Eli, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. Twenty and five years old uh, was he when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and nine years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abba, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did that was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that David his father did. Here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. And he removed the high places and break the images and cut down the groves and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For under those days the children of Israel did burn incense into it, and he called it Nehushtan. Do you see that? The very thing that God saved them with to heal them 712 years ago, they now have fell into apostasy so deeply that they take that brazen serpent that God gave them to heal them and to save them, and they rename it after another God and burn incense to it instead of God. Now, what do you do with that? I'll tell you what I do with it. Brother, that's God's people today. 
taking all the things that God gave us and renaming it after the other gods of this world. 400 years ago, God finalized the greatest book that ever kissed this planet in a King James 1611 authorized version over 400 years ago. The complete final revelation of God in the English language which was the final work of God to mankind. And 300 years later, you know what scholarship, Baptists, neo-evangelicals, and many of God's people did? They did the same thing they did back in 2 Kings. They took the devil's Bible in 1901 with an RSV, an ASV, and today an NIV, and now they worship it instead of the God-honored Bible that God gave them. Christ came out of that tomb and was resurrected. 300 years after that resurrection, what did quote-unquote God's people do? They brought in all the pagans into the church and took the resurrection of Christ and wanted to connect it back to the pagan godless Ashtoreth. And so they connected the resurrection of Christ when he came out of that tomb to a pagan godless female deity, which we know as Easter. And all of God's people said, Amen. Glory to God. What did they do? If you have any kind of incept about the Bible at all, you know that Jesus Christ was born on September 22nd or 23rd, take your pick, at the Feast of Tabernacles. You know that, if you know your Bible. What did we do? We changed that to another God and made his birthday December 25th, which is the birthday of Baal, the sun god. And all God's people said, Amen. You see the parallels? Nothing's changed. <clears throat> and we've taken God's salvation and made it into a doctrine, no doctrine, no repentance, made it into a wishy-washy thing that you can get saved on how you feel. And God's people today have done the same exact thing but all the things that God gave us that they did in 712 B.C., when they took the brazen serpent by which God delivered them and saved them and healed them, and 712 years later, or 739 years later, they renamed it after another pagan god and are burning incense to it. And today, a true Bible believer not only has to be separate himself from the world, he needs to separate himself for most of Christianity's, or 99% of it. I don't have a lot of pastor friends. I have some that are call me, they're calling me all the time, and I'm spending hours with them a week. They believe just what we believe. They're just trying to put it all together. And I get calls from North Carolina, South Carolina, Alabama, California. I mean, I get them from everywhere. And I try to help these guys as best I can. And they're good guys, and they really understand where we're at and I'm you know I'm happy to try to help them but I don't I'm not part of any fellowship of churches uh, they're worthless I don't uh, I don't go preach places where their doctrine is not pure I don't hang out with Bible studies where you know the, the doctrine is not pure I, uh, I there's no value in that God is not pleased with that 
And so I found out that not only today in the Laodicean church do I have to separate myself from the world, I have to separate myself from most Christians because of what takes place right here. We don't have anything in common. I got a book, you don't. I got a book I believe, you don't. I got a, believe, I got a book that's perfect, you don't believe you have one. End of discussion. We got nothing in common. But my people, we love the Bible. We talk about the Bible. We try to, the best of our ability, encompass everything we do, like the nation of Israel, around the Bible. But we have a Bible, and we believe it. Now, this is why today you as a Bible-believing child of God, like Moses, will not only have to take your stand against the world, but you're going to have to take your stand against the people of God. But the people of God who have fallen into the mixed multitude crowd or bad doctrine or heresy and those who have taken the very things that God has given us and renamed them after their own gods of Laodicea. And I'm just telling it right now. And I know why so many of you won't do it. Because you too will be blamed for their ungodly lives, for their ungodly families and the disasters that continually unfold in their lives. They'll blame you for it. When all the time we now know the truth, don't we? The real issue isn't you, it isn't me, it isn't anybody. It wasn't Moses. Their real issue was against God. But it's really God and His truth that they hate. Even as they're in churches this morning pretending that they're okay with God. And yet if you would look into their life and you would look, throw them a Bible in front of them, they couldn't survive if their life depended on it. And when you do that, then you're the problem and we'll just skip off to another church. We'll start the facade all over again. When we get caught there, we'll move on to another one. And it's like a, what, 20-act play? But for me and you, look and live. In a time in our lives, we looked to the cross and we, we got God's salvation and because of that, today we live. But after you look to the cross, look and live isn't over. After you get saved, then you need to look to the book because the two work together with God. And you, you, you look to the book and you live. You live a life by getting to the promised land a place in your life where you don't need the props anymore. You don't need to pretend you care about winning people to Christ or you care about soul winning or you care about prayer or you care about bus ministry or you care about this. Now all you care about is the book and that book will carry you through. That book will help you see the miracles that are going on around you. It'll not only help you see it, it'll put you right in the middle of them. You won't have to ask for somebody to disciple. You won't have to ask to be put in ministry. You won't have to be asked uh, for God to use you. God will use you because you're in the book that God uses to use you. The last thing God's going to do is put you in ministry when you don't know what you're doing. You get working with somebody and they ask a question and you give them the wrong answer or you don't know the answer. I can find that in the, in the kindergarten class. What God is looking for is men and women who will make that book all-inclusive in their life, that you live it, 
because look and live. We looked at salvation and the cross, and today we live. But we have to look at that book to live in the promised land. Getting to that point where you cross over Jordan. And you know, there's so many things in the Bible that illustrate that. You know, there's things in the Bible that actually, that's one of them, you know, what they crossed over Jordan, that they now were in a place that they could live by the promises of God. And Joshua made that very clear in Joshua chapter 1, one of the greatest sermons in the Bible about what it takes to stay in the land. But you're going to find another picture in the Bible, too, of how God does that, and that's when God changes a person's name. When God changes a person's name in the Bible, there's, there's three that are bad and, there, and, and there's, there's four or five that are good. And that always is a picture of when, you don't, when God took Jacob, whose name means schemer, and changed his name to Israel, it showed that he had gotten to the place where he crossed over Jordan. When he took Abraham, whose name was Abram, and changed his name to Abraham, it signified a point in his life when he never looked back, and now where he couldn't trust God for anything, he's going to trust God for everything. Why? He's in the promised land. And at some point, God wants to change your name. some point, God wants to change your name and put the blessings of God in your life that you never look back. And what you're up against is a Christianity that is pagan. A Christianity that is completely distraught. A Christianity that is built on falsehoods. And you have to stay in that book yourself and stay in the promised land. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer. Don't forget Thursday.